My name is Gianni Russo, a.k.a. Carlo, the infamous son-in-law from The Godfather. I'm now known as the Hollywood Godfather, and this is my... Welcome, everybody. It's time for another Hollywood Godfather podcast. And I got something tonight, or we have, well, or we all have, an amazing guy with an amazing story. And I, I can't wait to get into it. I'm sure you're going to feel the same way. First, me being a gentleman, we have to introduce our lady first. How are you, my darling? I'm good. How are you? I'm, I'm here. Pat, my compadre, my friend, my writing partner. Pat, you're here. I'm here. Hi, everybody. Uh, uh, Jeannie, since uh, our guest is, is a friend of yours, uh, why don't you uh, set it up and start us off? So uh, this uh, tonight will be the Jeannie Raymond show. Okay. Yeah. Which, uh, which eventually will become that. But we'll yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jeannie. All take, right. Take it well, um, you may have heard of today's guest if you listen to the podcast Undisclosed. And the epi or the season was the state versus Gary Mitchum Reeves. And shortly after his season, he started his own podcast called Mitchum. And I'm here to tell you, it is a treat. I listened every Monday. I call them Mitchum Mondays, and I couldn't wait to get in my car every Monday and check out those episodes. No, and that's it, what you've been uh, doing on Mondays. What'd you say? <laughs> I said, that's what you've been doing on Mondays. Huh? That's my favorite thing about Mondays. I'll tell you what. Uh, it's a podcast, and he shares his stories about running moonshine, being wrongfully convicted, and growing up too fast. So my friend, Gary Mitchum Reeves, but we call him Mitchum. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. It's always good to see you, Jeannie. And it's I so good to see you. Here. I'm, I'm very honored. Thank you. We're, we're so glad you're here. So I'll tell you the one thing. Um, I listened to Mitchum's podcast, and I don't know which came first. My daughter asked me today. Um, I think I'm. I don't know when I picked up on Hollywood Godfather, but I know I listened to Undisclosed, which was fantastic. That's what where my I've always got a headpiece in or an earpiece in, and listening to a podcast. So I listened to your story on Undisclosed. And then I tuned into uh, the Mitchum podcast, and and you like Gianni. Tell us a lot of your life story and growing up and how you got started. And I'm just it's fascinating to me that at 14 years old, both of you turned uh, and made such big strides in different type of business, but at such young ages. And I look at the young kids today, and I think at 14, there is no way they could have done what either one of you did. So you want to tell us a little bit? It's a different world uh, than it was at that time. Uh, I actually got started before I was 14. My, my, may I say a couple of things first before I get into that? Uh, Whatever you I, want. I always like to let everybody know, especially this hear me for the first time. I had the greatest parents in the world. Uh, they had me, they turned 46 years old the year I was born. And uh, I had three older brothers in World War II. One was with Patton. And uh, so I was born late in life to these parents. They were cotton mill workers. They worked in the cotton mill. My father was orphaned at eight years old. 
he got in the service during World War One before he was 16 years old. So the things I did in life, my parents had nothing to do with it. They they were they they didn't condemn me, they didn't condone it, but they always uh, they always uh, uh, were there for me. So when I tell about all these wild and crazy things that happened, it, my parents had nothing to do with it. That is that okay? Of course, yeah. that's, a, that's what we call a disclaimer. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Bell said that same thing. Okay, uh, where do you want me to start, Jenny? You, you... From the beginning, yeah. you got right. days. Just go. Okay. We want the story. Okay. Well. Uh, I grew up in Floyd County, Rome, Georgia, and um, uh, because my mother's age when I was born, she suffered, suffered from uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome. So I ended up staying with an aunt and my grandfather. That was my pioneer days. They lived out in the country. Uh, my grandfather had a fireplace that I would sit by at night, and he would tell me stories of him growing up in North Carolina and Tennessee. And uh, but my cousin, uh, he owned uh, a few beer joints. We call them beer joints here in the South. Uh, some people call them taverns. Uh, they, but these were beer joints. Um, so as a young kid, I stayed with him a lot. And uh, one of the places he had was uh, 12th Street Beer Joint. If you can imagine this, uh, and this was during the segregated South. Uh, so this is 12th Street in East Rome. It's a two-lane street. He had his his place. You could hear the country music playing from there. You could walk across the street, and a guy named Buddy, he had a place, and he had a place. He had a barbecue place and a tavern. My cousin would give me money so I could go over to Buddy's because I loved his barbecue. He had a place in the back for white people to go, and so I would go in there, and I, that's what I fell in love with. Sam Cooke, Fast Domino, and that type of music. So as I grew up, and my brother, one of my brothers, would bring in moonshine from the next county over was Polk County, a place called Easton Hill. That was the hub of moonshine making. And then back in the uh, Prohibition days, they shipped uh, truckloads of moonshine up to Detroit, New York, all over the north. And um, um, so I got acquainted with that world pretty fast. But my brother, he uh, he would pick me up. I'm probably maybe 10 years old and uh, go with him to stash the moonshine. We had different stash locations. Let me just ask you one question. What, what year are we talking about so our audience knows? This was uh, after Prohibition, right? Uh, well, you're not no. that old. <laughs> This was during the 50s, uh, oh, 19, go, yeah. but Prohibition, uh, Floyd County was 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 dry for liquor. Uh, they didn't vote liquor in here till 1972, okay. but they had beer, beer joints and, you know, it was legal. But the uh, bonded liquor, you could go to Atlanta, Chattanooga and pick up bonded liquor. Uh, but Rome was dry for it at that time. But what I was saying about the Prohibition days was this Eason Hill in Polk County, Georgia, was known for the moonshine capital of Georgia. And they shipped 
moonshine up and up and up north in tankers back then. Wow. And this was before my time, but uh, my older brothers, they knew about it. So uh, my brother started, I, I, I would go with him and, and, and to, uh, uh, to stash the stuff. So I learned to drive these old cars. Uh, he had a 54 Mercury and, um, I learned to drive those things when I was about 11, 10, 11, 12 years old. So by the time I'm 14, I can drive a car pretty good, real good. And, uh, so there were a lot of, uh, uh, shot houses in the rural areas of Floyd County, uh, bootleggers where a shot house was where you could go and drink on the premises, like 25 cents a shot, maybe something like that. They'd have a jukebox in the living room, pinball machine on the front porch. And, uh, so I started delivering to these places because the, the, the law didn't know me yet. They got to know me. Uh, didn't. <laughs> So uh, I'm delivering liquor to these kind of places, and uh, uh, you never knew what you were going to run into. Uh, one time I walked in a place, and there was a knife fight. Guy had cut a guy all to pieces, and uh, I, I made a quick U-turn and got out of there real quick. But it, as a kid, uh, and my '51 Ford, uh, I had a lot of fun. It, I enjoyed it. Well, my brother kind of got out of it. He's he decided to go down to toward Atlanta and run a U-Haul place. Uh, but I graduated on into a little bigger time. Um, the man that my brother had worked for, he furnished the uh, liquor making material for a lot of the uh, people who were making the whiskey, like the uh, jugs. Back then, you didn't have the plastic jugs; you had the gallon. Coke syrup jugs that uh, the restaurants used, and you could buy those. They would deliver the sugar. Uh, one time I had a load of sugar, taking it down to Eastern Hill, and we had a flat tire on the truck, so the police came by, held the flashlight for us while we changed the tire. And he asked us what was hauling, we told him the fertilizer. Uh, we got by with that one. You wouldn't get by with that one now. You load some fertilizer, they think you're going to blow something up. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, it's a different world now. So I got involved with the man who used to run tankers up to Detroit. And um, he, uh, I got involved with him. So we started running liquor to Detroit. We'd get a U-Haul truck for my brother. And uh, we would go to Dayton, Tennessee and load up uh, the liquor there from a, from a moonshiner. How much and liquor? We had, I think that, that first trip, we had probably 400 gallons uh, in a U-Haul truck in gallon jugs. Um, it was something close to that anyway. So my first trip, now this was my first time, it's in the wintertime, and we ran into a blizzard. It was snowing when we left Rome, but as further north we got, it just became um, a blizzard. So we're going up through Kentucky. Uh, some you couldn't tell if it was on the highway or not. Uh, it, it was just uh, <laughs> we couldn't. Nobody was on the road but us. Hardly we couldn't stop. We had to get through it, but we managed to get there. So we get into Detroit. Now this is 1967. 
and they'd had the riots there in Detroit at that time. Um, so this carload of guys meet us. These were black gentlemen. They meet us and lead us through Detroit. We'll go over to the Canadian border and they stand guard with shotguns, machine guns and pistols. Uh, we unload the liquor. Now the scary part was, uh, first of all, we couldn't even get through there. We, we hadn't had the escort. So we got, uh, we go back to this gentleman's house that was buying the liquor, paying for it. You got to go down in a basement. A little scary for me. Now, the man I'm with, he knew these people, but I'm having to trust him that we're going to come out of there alive. So, uh, how old are you at this point? I was just oh, about upset. I probably was about 19 years old, I guess. Okay. Um, I was I was a high mileage nineteen year old. Put it that way. Yeah. I'd, I'd already been through a lot at that time. So we get down in the basement, and when you get down there, man, he had a bar down there. I mean, it was like going into a, a lounge in Atlanta. Had the lights, the jukebox. Uh, you could get any kind of drink you wanted. But what they really liked to get a hold of it was that good Tennessee moonshine whiskey. And he would sell that. He he made a lot of money on it. Uh, he made more money on it than we did. What's so, the market? We were, I think we paid in 1967, seemed like we paid $4 a gallon. We were delivering it for eight, nine, ten dollars $10 a gallon. And then um, he was selling it by the, by the shots. So <clears> he, <throat> he made good money. I know we went back in the spring. And he told uh, told us that he had cleared ten grand, uh, and he, the problem he had, he was going to have to hide this money. Uh, he, he couldn't, you know, he had the bar, which that was a legal bar he had, but uh, he couldn't show the money. I said, I'd like to have that problem. But I've got <laughs> so, so uh, out of your four hundred gallons, he made a ten thousand dollar profit. Well, uh, I can understand to, that, yeah, by the shot. Even if he's getting 50 cents a shot, you're going to get a lot of money. Yeah. 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 Uh, we went Why back and rob him. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I would have done. <laughs> so, Mitchum, I've never asked you, and I don't know if you've ever said, and you may not want to say now, but I know uh, the, the people making the moonshine were did you were the same people was it one just whole big group of people or how'd that work oh they were they were whiskey makers all over these mountains i mean oh, so we, you were running for everybody oh no no we didn't run for everybody we uh but we furnished the making material to a lot of different ones that we furnished the jugs and sugar and the yeast and all of that for uh but no, they were they were uh, quite a few. And the stash locations we had with my brother uh, was out in the Floyd County rural country area where we would have a different places. Now, a lot of other the liquor runners would have stash locations out there. So if if my brother brought in a couple of hundred gallons and we ran out before we could get back and get another load. We would borrow some from somebody else, 
Now, you couldn't borrow from just anybody. Some of these people were, were dangerous to borrow from, but they borrowed from us. We borrowed from them and kind of had an understanding. How well, long how did that go on? Involved in, this, uh, uh, in this operation, running back and forth. Uh, I'm sorry. How, how long were you involved in this operation, going back and forth like this? Um, all my, from the time I was 14 years old to uh, probably about 1970. Um, and, and I also brought in bonded liquor out of Atlanta and Chattanooga. Uh, and life was simple back then. The, 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 the bootleggers that sold whiskey uh, sold it only in pints and half pints. And uh, $5 a pint, two fifty for a half a pint, bourbon a blend. So it, it was simple. That, I would go to Atlanta, get a trunk load of pints and half pints, and I had two, three different people that I delivered a haul for. And uh, I did that. Up. They voted liquor in here in 1972. And uh, I did that even after they voted liquor in because you still couldn't get it on Sunday, except from the bootleggers. So I still had a little business going there for a while. Were you ever caught? Never got caught. Uh, close calls, had some car chases. Uh, oh man, we had, our cars were a lot faster than the police cars at that time. I, I got a, they didn't, they didn't have a chance of catching some of us, but, um, once I could get, if, if I was in a chase, I'll give you for instance, uh, I had a 53 Buick and cars helped me remember a story. Okay. This 53 Buick and I'm coming through the city of Rome. Now, Rome had a well-known brothel here, Pegasus Brothel, known all over the world. The reason was the military guys from Fort Benning, uh, Dobbins, uh, they would come in here to Rome, and then they'd go all over the world and tell about Pegasus. So I'm flying by Pegasus' house, and Hood flew off that Buick and landed at her front door. So <laughs> can you imagine the noise? <laughs> The 53 Buick Hood makes landing on concrete. Uh, they they didn't catch me, but they caught me to it. So I, I got away. If I could ever make it to the to the dirt roads, we had uh, hiding places out there and had a, a rigged up where you could turn your taillights off, you know, so they couldn't see your taillights. How much money would you think you made during that time? I, I made a good bit, but I, you know, it was, I, I spent it as fast as I could make it. And, uh, when you, when you're young and you ain't got good sense anyway, and uh, you're just going through life and having a good time spending it. I, I, I can remember making several thousand a week uh, in the sixties, which was good money back then. Oh, it's good money today. Hello. <laughs> when you made these runs, I mean, you, you obviously had to worry about people hijacking your load. Uh, were you armed? To the bear. Yeah. yeah, we were armed. Did you ever have a problem in that regard? Uh, there, there was one time we had a bit of a problem, but we, uh, we escaped. <laughs> there was a bit of 
that was a shooting. Do what, Jeannie? Is that with your cousin? Uh, yeah, I had a, well, it wasn't that cousin. It was another, uh, I, normally I, I ran alone. Uh, I didn't, I didn't usually have anybody with me except on those truckloads. We do two, two guys, but we did have a, we had a problem one night and it was really, uh, up toward Tennessee. We ran into a situation. What kind of but situation? Well, uh, somebody had found out our route, and they were waiting up the road with us up for us to. Uh, um, well, you seem hesitant to say because there's the statute of limitations on murder, so I know about that. <laughs> <laughs> so we should move on to the next subject. Oh, <laughs> uh, where were we? Anywhere you want to be. <laughs> so, well, we're, we're, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. You ready for a commercial? Yeah, no, we are. Yeah. Are we? Already? Yeah. Okay. We'll be right back. All right. Don't go nowhere. We know where you live. Today's show is being sponsored by Cordelione Fine Italian Food Products. This sponsor really means a lot to me. Cordelione Fine Italian has taken the heart and soul of the Godfather films and created a line of food products that include pasta sauce, balsamic vinegar from Modena, Italy, Genco extra virgin olive oil from Sicily. They created delicious pasta sauces, marinade, tomato basil, arrabbiato, and my favorite, Clemenza's meat sauce. You will be amazed. You will think your grandmother made the sauce herself. CorleoneBuyingItalian.com that's CorleoneBuyingItalian.com. All right, we're back with our Mitchum. I like that name. I, you know, I heard your name all my life. My mother was in love with Robert Mitchum. <laughs> I, I got to talk with him on the phone once. He, uh, My sister was a Robert Mitchum fan, and she named me after Robert Mitchum when I was born. She was I knew that had to come from there. I knew it. Yeah, that's yeah, so I, 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 I had Robert Mitchum on the phone. Yeah, he, uh, I, I wrote him a letter during the, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but it's a funny story. I mean, he, he did call me after I wrote him a letter, which, uh, well, I, if I, I, I get way ahead of myself, but I wouldn't. That's okay. This doesn't have to go in order. We can hit a story. Well, uh, in 1990, I got a administrative pardon from the pardon parole board. Uh, uh, I did seven years for the murder. I did nine years on parole. And then in 1990, I got that pardon. So I, I couldn't try to do anything about the wrongful conviction until. Okay, I got let's, let's, let's hold it up right there since we started on that. Let's talk about that. See, that's what he said. He, he knows yeah. he knows the scenario. In All order. right. Let's, <laughs> let's back it up and let's just say. Um, yeah, just make an editing note for Mike. That's all. Yeah, okay. Go ahead. All right. No, it's not your fault. All right. So when I first heard about Mitchum, it was on the podcast Undisclosed. And and that was with Robbie Achadri and Susan Simpson. And they highlighted uh, Mitchum's show for a season, which has seemed to be entangled with one, a, a couple of different 
seasons that Undisclosed has has taken over. But can you tell us how you got involved with with that show or that podcast? Uh, yeah, it was 2016. They were here working on Joey Watkins' story. He was wrongfully convicted. And by the way, he was just exonerated uh, a few weeks ago after 23 years. Wow. I'm, four, I'm one of four men in this county that was wrongfully convicted. Two of those men were exonerated last year after serving 25 years each. Joey served 23 years. I did 16. Okay, let's, let's, let's stop right there. We don't know what you were convicted of. Let's start with that story. Okay. Where do you want me to go? The well, you were you were arrested and convicted for murdering your wife, yes? Yes. Okay, let's start with how, how you got married and what happened. How long were you married? What, what happened? How did it lead up to doing jail time? We, uh, we got together in about 68, 69, somewhere in there, and we opened up a beer joint. Uh, her name was Grace, and we called it Grace's Place. Uh, we'd only been open two or three weeks. A guy came in there and shot a guy. Uh, these were the kind of places that were around here. It was just the, the wild west here. So Grace and I had a son together. Um, and, uh, we, we opened up the beer joint. We had the beer joint from 1969 through 1970. After the man got shot in the place, uh, he didn't die. But when that happens, the police would set down the highway and then they would stop every car that left there. Well, that'll take long if you're out of business. So we were out of business. It didn't take too long. And um, I went to Atlanta and got a job running a liquor store, package store in Atlanta. Well, by then I'm trying to be as straight as I can. Of course, I was still bringing in bonded liquor uh, out of Atlanta into Rome. Grace and I. So semi-straight. <laughs> Sorry. Semi-straight. Just yeah. a little, little. All right. Just checking yeah. on you. <laughs> I'm bringing in, I'm bringing in bonded liquor on the weekends. And then I make a backhaul with uh, marijuana. It was a pretty big thing at that time. So I could take five, 10 pounds of marijuana back to Atlanta. Uh, I had people that would take it all at one leap. So. You know, guys got to make a living. Uh, Grace and I split up. Then in 1974, and I had custody of our son. So in 1974, I come back to Rome. We get back together, and I invest in a beer joint with her again. And uh, one of the biggest mistakes that I ever made in my life. So the world I lived in uh, ended as, about as fast as I lived it. Um, 1974. August the 13th, 1974 uh, was an election. The uh, judge that hated me, uh, he lost the election and another judge took his place. Anyway, that's that, that story there. Good Lord. Uh, so on, we, we were, we were going to have to close on that Tuesday because it was a, an election day. Back then, you had to close on election days. Uh, now, keep in mind, I've been trying to remember something all these years, 
that I didn't see. Uh, uh, the people that did the murder, person that did the murder, he, uh, they had drugged me with quaaludes and morphine. And I didn't know I was drugged. I, all I know was I woke up in jail on Tuesday morning, August the 13th, with a judge and a, and a detective reading a murder warrant off to me that I had supposedly killed Grace. And, and it was definitely an overkill. She was shot many times and was shot after she was on the floor. Wait, where did this happen? It happened in, in Rome at a house that I had rented on the uh, east, east part of Rome, Maple Street. House is still there. Okay, you woke in- up, just so I got this straight, you woke up in jail. Where did they pick you up? I mean, I, my- you were unconscious and all that, but where did they get you? Well, I had I had made it to my mother and father's house with my son. Uh, and I had put him, laid him down in the bed. Uh, and I lay down on a little day bed they had there and passed out. This was in August, uh, hot August, but my parents knew how to keep a house cool without air conditioning. There was fans and trees. And my mother had five sons. They were five of us boys, one girl. So anytime any of us came and just laid down, well, she'd cover you with a sheet because you catch a cold if you don't have some cover on you. They used that against me at the trial. How? Why? Well, the way they put it at the trial that I shot and killed her, ran to my parents' house and, and got in the bed and covered covered myself with my clothes still on. Uh, I mean, they you know, they made it look like that. And that was not the way it happened. I had a gun. The gun I had had not been fired. So, but let me go back to when they read the murder warrant off to me, then they carried me. It happened in the city of Rome. So they had to take me to the Floyd County Jail, where that was the sheriff's department. So they carried me to the Floyd County Jail. Man, I'm dying. I mean, I can't keep anything on my stomach. I can't keep water. Uh, I don't know what's happened. I got no memory. And so I asked the deputy when I got there, I said, look, could y'all give me something for my stomach before you lock me up? And he said that the county can't afford to take you to the hospital and you go get the death penalty anyway. I didn't ask to go to the hospital. I just asked for something for my stomach. So they put me up on the third floor in a side cell, filthy, rat infested. I mean, it was, uh, and, and there I am. And I'm all, almost died in there. Uh, so. First thing I had to take care of was to make sure that my son was taken care of. And my mother, uh, I got I arranged to, for them to get temporary custody of him. Now, keep in mind, everything I had was stolen. I had nothing. Uh, I had no money left. I had nothing. What, so, under what circumstances was she killed and why were you arrested? Why you? Because when the police got to the scene... Her two teenage daughters told them I did it, and they had tunnel vision. When in actually, one of the daughter's boyfriend is the one who actually did the murder, which we could, I can get to that place later. Yeah. At the time, it's the time I didn't, I didn't know what had happened. Uh, I learned from the GBI years later that I wasn't even there when she was actually killed. But that's the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, right? Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, 
so I'm in jail um, and I'm I'm sick. And my parents were trying to, uh, my pop was trying to arrange to get me to uh, at least get a doctor or somebody to look at me. So the judge decided he would send me to the hospital, which was the state hospital for the criminal insane in Milledgeville, Georgia. That's where they sent me. So I ended up in Milledgeville, Georgia, in a place called the Binion Building. I was, I was there for nine weeks for the criminal insane. The best part about it, it was at least it was air conditioned. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Mitchum, uh, at what point did you realize that you were arrested? They came and arrested you from your parents' house? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I can, Barrett, I can kind of remember them arresting me because one of the officers that arrested me said at the trial, that I didn't appear to be drunk, I appeared to be drugged. But that just went over everybody's head. So I, they they bring me back to the county jail, okay? And uh, by then, uh, they had to appoint me an attorney. So they, here come a deputy with a guy, and he was drunk. And I said, good grief, I hope they don't put this man in the same cell with me. Meet your lawyer. That's my lawyer. <laughs> That's your lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> Meet your lawyer. And he was drunk. And he asked me for, uh, uh, he said, uh, have you got $5? I could get a pint of whiskey. Well, I didn't have five. I mean, I had nothing. So uh, the sheriff had to make him leave. Well, I didn't see him again uh, for a couple of weeks later. And he was drunk then. So the sheriff told him, said, look, if you if you can't come up here sober, I'm going to have to lock you up. I said, don't put him in the same cell with me. You know? <laughs> so, so this, then, is, uh, this is a capital case, and they supply you with a drunk attorney. Did you wind up going to trial with this guy? Wait, I tell you. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I did. But he died nine months after the trial from cirrhosis of the liver. The guy was sick. He, he was sick. Oh, wow. Uh, so they they brought they sent up the uh, at one time they sent another attorney up there uh, for me to talk to, and if y'all remember the uh, old western shows on TV, the Wider up and Bat Masterson, Gene Berry played Wider, wore wore a derby hat and cane. Uh, this guy came in, he's a lawyer, right? And he looks like Wider. I mean, it looks like uh, Bat Masterson got the derby hat, got the cane. I don't know if the guy's going to a costume party or what, but he came in real cocky and says, uh, I don't care if you're guilty or innocent, $10,000, I'll get you out of this. I didn't have that. Couldn't get it. He tipped his derby hat and walked out the door. Uh, there's a story about that, and I'll tell you, tell you about that later, uh, about the $10,000 club in Floyd County. So, as time went on, well, then if this is 1975, so then 1976 in January, they take me over for a trial, and uh, the lawyer is so drunk, the judge sent him home and said, if you ain't sober tomorrow, we're going to have to get somebody else to try this case. So the next day, he was so hung over in such bad shape, he couldn't strike the jury. So they got another lawyer. And I knew him. He was a he was a customer of the bootleggers that I sold to. He just happened to be sober that day. 
So, uh, <laughs> my my sister was there, and she kept records and notes of everything that happened, and she had the time down that they struck a jury. Uh, they took a recess. They went to lunch, and in a five-hour trial with a drunk lawyer, they find me guilty and sentenced me to life. Oh, your your trial took five hours. Five hours. How long did they deliberate? Did they have a jury? Yeah. Yeah. How, how long did the jury deliberate? Uh, uh, <laughs> so like five minutes. <laughs> I mean, they didn't deliberate. Well, one of the, the jury foreman, the foreman of the jury, his wife was a judge's secretary. You you got to understand... To understand my story, the political arena in Floyd County, Georgia, in those years. Kangaroo Court. I got a copy of a, of a letter here that the uh, preachers of Floyd County sent a letter to the judge, the district attorney, that they were concerned about uh, organized crime and uh, white slavery and all this stuff happening in Rome. Uh, and they'd like something to be done about it. But they sent the letter to the one of the men that uh, had a lot of control over that hat. So the the ten thousand dollar club, the the guy wanted ten thousand dollars. They was an ambets club here, and they called it the ten thousand dollar club. That's where the judges, the lawyers, the district attorney, they'd meet there. So anybody that had a case, if they had ten grand, they could they could pay that ten grand, and everybody got part of that. And they could get you out of that. That's why he told me he didn't care if I was innocent or guilty. But for ten thousand dollars, if I let's get back to the day ever find that out. Did that ever get disclosed to the public about that club? It, it, it no, no. It it uh, it went on for years. Uh, finally. You know, finally, things kind of got civilized around here. Really, I tell you the truth: when things begin to change, is when they finally both look around. Now, the prostitution was still going on for a long time, but Rome's a lot different now than it was that it was back then. It's a lot different. Okay, the the crime when your wife was killed. Why was she killed? I wouldn't learn that until twenty sixteen. That many years later, all those years later, I, I, I didn't know that until the undisclosed podcast people investigated my case. But you and mentioned what, earlier that her boyfriend did it. Your girl, your her daughter's boyfriend killed you. What yeah. Was that about? Okay. But he killed a lot of more people too. Why would Ryan fight and kill your wife? Is what I want. Yeah. Well, what he specialized in was killing people for insurance money. He finally got caught for that in 1981 uh, in Chatsworth, Georgia. This guy hired him to kill his stepson to collect insurance policy. And he, the way he would do would to uh, drug him with quaaludes and morphine and try to make it look like an accident or something like that. But uh, I'm the only one that lived in that house that had a huge insurance policy. I had a $50,000 insurance policy. 100,000 if it had been an accident. and But I had a will that it would have went for my children uh, if, if anything happened to. 
So why tell us why he killed Grace? Because Grace would, uh, he wanted Grace. He didn't want the daughter. He wanted her. And according to a witness, years later, we learned that uh, because she would not, um, I guess, help him kill me to collect that insurance money. Uh, they couldn't. Well, that collect. makes sense. I mean, uh, so, but whatever happened that night, it seems like uh, a planned crime went bad. They they loaded you up with drugs for a reason, which was to kill you. And the murder was yeah, yeah, and because of your insurance policy, because this was this guy's history, and somehow there was a falling out among thieves, if you will. Yeah, he gets killed, so that the police. I mean, obviously they didn't investigate this very well. I mean, no, was, they didn't. was this guy the, the guy that did the shooting? Was he politically involved with the? Uh, with the regime in that town, with the police, the judges and everybody. So it was, why did they pick you? You're the drug guy. You're the person that, I mean, just adding it up, you're the victim. This guy's a track record of doing these things. So was he involved with the, with the police or with the prosecutors or judges or what? The guy was on parole. He hadn't been out of prison long. Uh, they, him and another guy had, uh, uh, had thrown lighter fluid on a man at the Floyd County jail and set him on fire. I mean, the guy was a cold blooded, Killer wasn't uh, the very first. I could tell. Man. Yeah. So, all right. So, uh, Mitchum, let me ask one question, Mitchum. Why do you think uh, they came after you? Why do you think they focused on you? Do you think it was because all those years of chasing you and they couldn't ever catch you from uh, bootlegging and and moonshining, or why why did they set you up? That had a lot to do with it, but I'm going to have to go back to. 1968, to explain that, if I may. Sure. In 1968, the Dixie Mafia was pretty big around here. Uh, a judge here was uh, associated with it. Um, there was a, uh, in Alabama, over in Alabama, there was a robbery that took place inside job, two cops that were in the Dixie Mob. They stole a lot of guns, and they came into Easton Hill, Polk County, like everything else did. It would run through there and distribute out through Tennessee, all, all through the South. Uh, I heard one of those guns, I can't prove this, but one of those guns might have been the one that killed Martin Luther King in 68. I don't know. But I do know that the man I worked for at that time asked me to ride with him down to Easton Hill. I had no clue what we were doing, but how I survived those years, you don't ask questions. I worked for the man. I did what I was asked to do, and I had no questions, and I didn't talk it. We go to Easton Hill. We pick up some guns. One of those guns was a 30 6 Remington rifle. He always paid tribute to this judge. Anything that happened here, truckloads of Sears products stolen, hijacked, all of that, anything happened, the judge would pay tribute. So we delivered this gun to the judge. He didn't like it that I was in the car. I didn't like it that I was in the car, but I'm already there. 
So the man I worked for, he just told me, he said, there'll be a dead bootlegger in a few days. I didn't ask any questions, but a few days later, a, a man who was a pretty big time bootlegger, he had been he had been caught for a load of bonded liquor coming into Rome and was facing time. He went down to that $10,000 club where the DA and the judges and all met, and he made a threat that if he went to prison, he was taking some people with him. He was scheduled to go before the grand jury, and that's signed his death certificate. He was killed, and it's never been solved. It's still unsolved. But that judge that appointed that drunk lawyer is the judge we delivered that gun to. Man, I, geez, that, that sends chills up and down my spine. I tell you, talk about, you know, this is uh, this is organized crime at its best or at its worst, depending on how you look at it. I mean, you've got, you've got the people who are sworn to protect and serve and all that. They're all organized criminals. Yeah. How do you yeah. protect yourself against that? Obviously, you don't because you no. wind up getting sentenced to life in prison for killing your wife, which you didn't do. So uh, we're, we're coming to the end of the show. Uh, you'll be back next week to tell us how this turned out. Obviously, you're here. You, you, this was this was worked out some way, and we would like to know about it. But as they say, to be continued. And want to Just thank you, thank you very much for being here this week. Yeah, and thank, uh, you. thank you very much. That's right. Yeah, and we will see you next week. Thank Thanks you a sir. lot, Mitch. Right. Thank you all to our listeners. Tune in next week, man. We'll find the finale of this. Great story. I'm telling you. Man. All right, please. Be careful. God bless you all. We'll see you next week. Good night, everybody. And that was that. But I'll be back. Thank you for tuning in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. Do you have a question for the mailbag? We love hearing from our fans and answering questions about past or future episodes, your favorite celebrities, or anything you'd like to know. Submit your questions online at HollywoodGodfatherPodcast.com or you can call us at 646-776-3038 and leave us a message. Who knows, your question may even make it on the air. Remember to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hollywood Godfather and at Real Gianni Russo. If you like our show and you like what we're doing, please leave us a review on your podcast or video streaming service. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Now we'll be back next week with a new exciting show and who knows who may be joining us. Until next time. I'll never get too old to have a little fun. Come on, I'm Gianni Russo. A genuine one of a kind. What a ride it's been, this life of mine. And I ain't done yet. I'll be back until next time. And that was that.